This week we continue our Advent sermon series, Jesus of the Prophets. And our reading is from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, and we will raise them against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The word of the Lord. Martin Luther King Jr. once uh, said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Famous words, what do they mean? Well, the word arc means a story. He's saying that the story of the universe is a moral story, but secondly, he's also saying it's a long story. In other words, there are times when this universe doesn't feel like a very moral place. In fact, there are times when this universe feels like a very unmoral place, a very unjust place. There are uh, all kinds of ways that this manifests itself in our lives, but we so often have the feeling that no matter how hard we work to make this world a better place, it seems like it's always two steps forward, three steps back. There's an increasing anxiety and instability um, about the future of our world. In fact, uh, many people are anxious and afraid for the future of things like democracy, freedom, equality, the environment, social cohesion. And this past year has only seemed to amplify that fear in us. It feels like we're stuck in a cosmic doom loop. That no matter how hard we work, that no matter how much progress we make, it feels like it never really makes any difference. We're, we're always in this stuck place. Martin Luther King Jr. was saying that even though this universe feels like we're stuck in a doom loop, he believed that one day everything would come right in the end. So here's the question. We could say, Dr. King, we're so glad that you have this wonderful conviction that one day everything's going to come right in the end. But how does that help us right now? What difference does it make in our lives right now when we feel like we're stuck in the middle of a never-ending doom loop. 
Well, I can't say for sure how Dr. King would answer that question, but I do know that his vision of the world was a biblical vision and that he would answer from that vision. Now, maybe that's not your vision of the world. Maybe you're exploring faith. Maybe you're appreciative of Jesus, but not a worshiper of Jesus. Maybe you're spiritually curious, but um, still somewhat skeptical. And even if you are a follower of Jesus, this question is still just as urgent for you too, because regardless of what we believe about the world, we all have to navigate this world. And that's especially difficult when we feel like we're in a stuck place. Are you in a stuck place today? Do you ever feel like, not just your life as an inhabitant of this world, but, but your own personal life, like you're in a stuck place, like you're stuck in the middle of a doom loop? We're in a series of passages um, in which we're looking at Old Testament prophecies that point to the work of the Messiah, this great king who would come and set things right. Uh, the passage that we just read this morning is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, and it says that, that this passage is actually talking about Jesus. So what does this show us about Jesus? And especially, how does it help us when we feel like we're stuck in the middle of a doom loop? Well, let's learn three things. We're going to see this morning that, first, history is a story. Second, Jesus is king of the story. And third, how that helps us in our place in the story. History is a story. Jesus is king of the story. And how that helps us in our place in the story. So first, history is a story. Now, let's get a little bit of context here. This passage takes place uh, roughly around the year 700 BC. Israel was under attack from Assyria, which was the most powerful nation in the ancient world at that time. So in verse 1, it says, siege is laid against us. They, the Assyrians, will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So uh, Israel's ruler, that's King Hezekiah. And um, the prophet Micah is saying that not only is he powerless to stop Assyria, but being struck on the cheek with a rod, that was a form of public shame. That this, The great ruler of Israel is being publicly humiliated here. But then God starts talking in the passage and he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now, Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David, the first great king of Israel who established the nation. Those were the glory days of the kingdom. God is saying that um, just as King David ruled over Israel in glory, that one day an even greater king is going to come. He's going to rescue Israel and reign over the nation in even greater glory. But that's not all. You see, if we just stopped there, then this would be a very nationalistic, tribal vision of victory for Israel only at the expense of every other nation. But that's not all that God says about this king. Look at what he says next. He says, He, this great ruler, will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now, do you see what's going on here? This is not just some narrow tribal vision for Israel only. This is a vision for the whole world. This shepherd, notice this king is a shepherd. That means he's caring and benevolent. And it's also a vision of security and peace. And that word peace is the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness and flourishing for the whole world. 
You see, this is the end of injustice, oppression, suffering, sickness, violence, and death. But even that's not all. You notice that he also says that this ruler will be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, this is not just a vision of security and peace for the world. It's a multi-ethnic, multicultural vision. And in the weeks to come, we're going to explore in more detail in different passages um, the details of this vision. But for right now, I just invite you to let the big picture of this vision soak in for just a moment. Because you realize what this is. This is a vision for the whole world. This is a, a vision of renewal and, and wholeness and healing for the whole world. Our culture calls this progress. In fact, progress is the idea that history is a story that's going somewhere good. Progress is the idea that history is a story that's going somewhere good. So when we imagine the world as, uh, as, as a universe, as a story that's headed towards justice, this is the vision that we imagine. We call this progress. Now here's the big question. Where do we get this vision? Where do we get this idea of progress? Well, we're looking at it. it. It comes to us from the Bible and only from the Bible. In fact, as far as I've ever been able to discover, and I've been looking for over 20 years, I've never been able to find another view of reality that offers us a vision like this. The Bible is utterly unique in offering us this vision. For instance, Eastern views of reality, like Hinduism or Buddhism or New Age spirituality, they say that this physical material world is an illusion and that the goal is not to renew the world, but to escape the world. Eastern views of reality say that history is not a story. It's a never-ending karmic cycle. It's a doom loop, and the goal is to escape the doom loop. The Bible is very, very different from this. So, for instance, Leslie Newbigin was a British missionary in India for 40 years. He had a very dear friend named Chaturvedi Badrinath, who was uh, an Indian scholar of world religions and also a very devoted Hindu. They were once having a conversation about the Bible, and Leslie Newbigin says, here's what my friend Chaturvedi Badrinath said to me about the Bible. He said, the Bible is not a book of religion. He said, we have plenty of books of religion in India. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. Now, that is a remarkable statement from someone who's a scholar of world religion, a, a devoted Hindu, and therefore someone who really knows what he's talking about. And understand, he didn't believe the Bible, but he understood what the Bible was claiming. Or, for instance, if you look at secular views of reality, the secular view is there is no God, this world is all there is. Secularism is deeply committed to this uh, moral vision of, of progress for the whole world, and I'm grateful for that, but think about it. Uh, secularism says that this world is nothing but the result of a mindless, unguided, natural process. And if that's true, then by definition, there is no story. There is no meaning. There is no hope. There's only chaos. There's only the doom loop. So as the famous atheist Richard Dawkins has put it, he's described life in this world as empty, pointless, pointless, 
futile, a desert of meaninglessness and insignificance. And yet, Richard Dawkins also acknowledges that we human beings can't live without meaning. So he also says the truly adult view is that our life is as meaningful, as full and wonderful as we choose to make it. Now, I want want to be as true and faithful to his thought process as I possibly can, but here's what I hear him saying. On the one hand, there is no such thing as ultimate meaning. But on the other hand, we human beings can't live without meaning, so we have to create meaning for ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but here's the question that I want to ask. How does a meaning that isn't real, how can that really sustain us in the stuck places of life? How can a meaning that isn't real, we know it's a lie, how can that really sustain us in the stuck places of life? Friends, here's the point. Our lives in this world, we experience that as a story, and we also have a deep longing that the story of this world would be headed somewhere good. The Bible is the only view of reality that offers that vision to us, and that leads to our next point. We've just seen, number one, that history is a story. But secondly, we see Jesus is the king of that story. So let's go back to our passage. Remember, Israel is under attack. Their whole society is falling apart. And um, their institutional leadership was so compromised that it was powerless to do anything about it. You think about it and you realize our situation is really not all that different from Israel's. So how does God encourage Israel and therefore us? Well, first, remember, he reminds Israel that history is a story, and he also reminds them that there's a king at the heart of that story. But, but that's not all we learn about this king. We just learned that this king is, is a future king who will come and renew the world, but that's not all. It's not just a future king. He's an ancient king. Because remember, God is saying there's a ruler, a king, who's going to come out of Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David. God is saying that there will be another ruler, another king, who will come out of Bethlehem to heal the world. And that's talking about Jesus. But notice what he says about this ruler who will come out of Bethlehem. He said, he's someone who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, you know how every superhero has an origin story? This is like the mother of all origin stories. It's saying that Jesus is an ancient eternal king. This is the mother of all origin stories, and it's tapping into one of the deepest longings of humanity. That it says that just as King David reigned over Israel in the glory days of the kingdom, there's an even greater king who ruled over the world when it was still a place of glory and beauty and perfection and wholeness before everything fell apart. But he's not just an ancient king. One day this king will come again in glory to renew the world and heal everything. He's not just an ancient king. He's a once and future king, the king of all history. Friends, here's why this is so important for us. You know, we just mentioned a bit ago that we live in a secular world. Now, to live in a secular world does not mean that nobody believes in God. It means that in our institutions, in our public life together, we are trained to function as if there is no God. So that to live in a secular age means that our world um, functionally, in our institutional life together, that, that our world is emptied of God. And yet, we find it almost impossible to function like that. 
The longing for something or someone to come and set things right is so powerful. It's so woven into the memory banks of humanity that even though we live in a world that functionally is emptied of God, we are constantly haunted by the longing for God. So, for instance, Thomas Hardy was one of the greatest writers and poets of the early 20th century. Many British intellectuals in, um, at that time, they were saying things like, you know, um, faith in God is really just a fairy tale. It's just a childish belief. And, and, and really, we have to grow up and put those childish fairy tales behind us. And Thomas Hardy was one of those intellectuals who said that. But then in 1915... Right at the beginning of World War I, he wrote a poem, a Christmas poem, called The Oxen. And I'll just paraphrase it for you, but basically he's saying, you know, when I was a kid, I remember we used to sit around the fire and at Christmas time, and some adult would tell us stories about the oxen in the manger, kneeling down in worship before the, ancient, uh, before the eternal uh, Jesus, the infant Jesus. And even though we believed that stuff when we were kids, now that we've grown up, uh, it, it's, it's impossible to believe in that anymore. Now that we've grown up, uh, there are very few people who are silly enough to believe in that tomfoolery. He says, so fair a fancy few would weave in these days. But then he says, yet. And friends, whenever uh, you're reading a poem and the poet says, yet, or but, or however, you always know that they're about to tell you the real point of the poem. Thomas Hardy says, yet I feel. If someone said on Christmas Eve, come, see the oxen kneel in the lonely Barton, that's a farmyard, by yonder coom our childhood used to know, I should go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so. Now, what's he saying? Well, Thomas Hardy is saying, look, we live in a world that's emptied of God. Notice he calls it the gloom. He's saying that in a secular world, there is no meaning, there is no hope, there's only the doom loop. To, to live in a secular world, it, it, to live in a world that's empty of God is to live in a gloomy world. But then he says, and yet, and yet, if someone were to invite me to go to the manger and to see the oxen kneeling down in worship of the infant Jesus, I would go with them hoping it might be so. I would go hoping it might be so. In other words, he's saying, look, I don't believe the Christmas story, but what if? I don't believe the Christmas story, but this world is an empty, gloomy place without it. I don't believe the Christmas story that Jesus is the ancient, once and future king of the world, but maybe I should. Thomas Hardy was haunted by a longing for the once and future king. A memory trace, or as Jerem Bars calls it, an echo of Eden that says that, that there once was a time when the world was a place of glory and beauty and perfection. And there was an ancient king, a great, glorious, loving king who reigned over all things. And we were connected to that king. We were united to that king. But then, in our pride and in our rebellion, we wrecked it. And now the world is under a curse because of our rebellion. We're stuck in a doom loop of our own making. But one day, that great king will come again to renew all things because he's an ancient king, he's an eternal king, he's the once and future king of all history. Don't you ever feel that way too? Friends, the promise of this passage, the, the promise that our hearts ache for is, is a longing that, that, um, that one day 
something or someone would come and set things right. That the ache of our hearts is this longing that, that, that this vision is not just some childish fantasy, not just some fair, fairy tale, but the truest index of our souls. And that one day, just as Jesus Christ came once uh, ages ago to begin this work of renewal, so he will come again once in the future to bring that work to completion, to heal the ache in our hearts and to reunite us with himself because he's the king of history. Friends, that promise is that at the heart of this passage. This passage is all about the fulfillment of that promise. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that history is a story. We've just seen that Jesus is king of that story. But lastly, we see how that helps us in our place in the story. Because here's the question. Yes, Jesus came once in the past. And yes, Jesus will come once again in the future. But how does that help us right now? What difference does that make in our lives today when we're right in the middle of, uh, of the stuck place in between those two things? Well, here's how this helps us. Uh, there's one more thing we need to see about the kingship of Jesus. Not only is he an ancient and future king, this passage is also showing us that Jesus is a hidden king. And here's what this means. Remember, uh, God is saying that a great ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem, and that would have been a big deal for ancient Israel because Bethlehem was the birthplace of the great King David, and the Messiah was supposed to come from the lineage of David. So to say that this uh, coming king would be born in Bethlehem was a way of connecting him to the lineage and the glory of David, but it's even more meaningful than that. Did you notice that when God was talking about Bethlehem, he he inserts a little editorial comment about Bethlehem. He says, But you, O Bethlehem of Fratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. God is saying that Bethlehem is so small and insignificant that it was constantly being overlooked. In fact, when they were making the ancient lists of uh, all the cities and, nation, uh, cities and towns and villages in ancient Israel, Bethlehem wasn't even on the list. It was that small, that insignificance. Here's the point. Friends, there is a glory and a beauty and a power that God says is coming out of Bethlehem, but that glory, beauty, and power is hidden in the smallness and the insignificance of Bethlehem. And friends, that is no accident. In fact, it's the gospel. Whenever God is going to bring his glory, beauty, and power in the world, how does he do that? If you read through the story of the Bible, you'll find that over and over again, whenever God is going to be at work in the world, he almost never chooses the rich or the beautiful or the powerful or the elite or the mighty. No. He, he almost always chooses the weak, the not much to look at, the poor, the weak, the despised, the lowly, the marginalized, the outcast, the rejected. In other words, God never chooses Jerusalem or Rome or London or New York. He chooses Bethlehem. Friends, Jesus is a hidden king because he's a Bethlehem king. And yes, Jesus has all glory, beauty, and power from all eternity, but it's a hidden glory, a hidden beauty, a hidden power. And yes, Jesus came to conquer death and to defeat evil, but the way Jesus conquered death was by dying on a cross, and the way he defeated evil was by allowing evil to pour out its full force on him on the cross. Because Jesus is not like 
King Hezekiah of Israel. Jesus didn't just get smacked on the cheek with a little stick. On the cross, the full weight of the God's wrath, the rod of God's wrath on all the evil, injustice, and rebellion of this world came down on full force on Jesus on the cross. The cross was the most brutal and painful and shameful form of execution the world has ever devised. In fact, it was so brutal and shameful that people didn't even talk about the cross. I mean, the cross, crucifixion was not something anyone mentioned in polite society. You see that even in his death, Jesus is the hidden king. He's the Bethlehem king. Now, here's what this means for you and for me. Um, Jesus is a hidden king because he's a Bethlehem king. So, yes, Jesus came once in the past. Yes, Jesus will come once again in the future. But right now, we're in a stuck place right in the middle of those two things. What does, how does that help us right now? How does the fact that Jesus is a Bethlehem king help us right now? Well, because Jesus is a Bethlehem king, it means that we can practice a Bethlehem spirituality. What does that mean? What is a Bethlehem spirituality? Well, first, it means that that we can practice a hidden hope. Because Jesus is our hidden king, it means that we can practice a hidden hope. Here's what I mean. In our culture, um, fame is a commodity. Platform is a currency. Um, Having a personal brand is an absolute necessity. Our culture rewards the accomplished, the powerful, the beautiful, the elite. It rewards the influencers. It rewards the thought leaders. So that if you don't have access to any of those things, our culture says you're a nobody. And if you do have access to those things, then you're living in constant fear and anxiety because you can never take your foot off the gas. The pressure is unending. Having a hidden king means we can live with hidden hope. That means that because Jesus is our hidden hope, that means that our true identity, our true security is not in our accomplishments, our performance, our platform, our fame, our personal branding, and it's not in our lack of any of those things. Our true identity, our true security is in Jesus who died for us on the cross. It's in what he did for us by dying for us on the cross. So that Paul, the apostle in the letter to the Colossians in chapter 3, Paul says that our life is hid with Christ in God. In other words, that means that that we can have a hidden hope because Jesus is our hidden king. It means it doesn't matter what the world says about you. The universal hidden king of the universe has poured out his love for you. But secondly, because we have a hidden hope, that means that we can live in humble peace with ourselves, with others, and with the whole world around us because God is our peace, because we have peace with God. So you notice in this passage, in verse 5, Micah says, He's talking about this great king. He says, he shall be their peace. But again, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says that that Jesus himself is our peace, that through his death on the cross, Jesus has affected our peace with God in our lives. That because Jesus has reconciled us to God, therefore Jesus can reconcile us to one another. We can live in humble peace. That means that that you become a vessel of this peace to the world around you so that instead of entering and jumping into the doom loop of tribalism and division in our world, it means that you can move out into this world as a peacemaker, someone who's able to love other people, even people the world would call your enemy. 
And you could do it because you're a part of the true story that is really bending and leading towards true justice, true peace, because God himself will come and bring it all into this world himself. Friends, we have a hidden hope in God that gives us a hidden peace with others. And you can have this hidden hope and live with this humble peace because you have a hidden king who died on a cross to be your peace. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning, our once and future king who reigned over all creation when, when you made it afresh, when everything was perfect and beautiful and whole. And even though in our rebellion, uh, we brought this world under a curse and now everything is falling apart, we feel like we're stuck in a doom loop. Father, we thank you that through Jesus, our once and future king, you are renewing all things. And even though we're in this seeming stuck place in the middle right now, waiting and hoping and longing, we thank you that we can live with hidden hope and we can live in humble peace because we have a hidden king who has created this humble peace between you and us through his death on the cross. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.